Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Be seated. It's good to see all of you here tonight. And I want you to take your Bible and join me in 1 Peter chapter 5. And our, I guess we could call it our practice text, will be verses 1 through 4. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 4, a text that's very uh, meaningful to me. It was the text that uh, Dr. Paige Patterson preached in 1979 when I was ordained to the gospel ministry. And is also a text that I have preached from many times when I've also had the joy of ordaining men to the ministry. And so it speaks to those who have a leadership assignment in the church. And yet we would not restrict its application uh, to just those leaders. But indeed, the words that we find here are a source of instruction and encouragement for all of us. But Peter writes in chapter 5, verse 1, the elders, and actually in the original text, the word therefore precedes it. And it really ought to be left there. So we'll go back again. Therefore, the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory, that does not fade away. Last week, we looked at the first step of the hermeneutical process, observation, what do I see? And we talked about tools and procedures for taking a good, long, hard look at the text. Then from the step of observation, we move to our second step this evening, that being interpretation, what does it mean? In other words, we're going to take the stuff of our observation, and now hopefully put it together in the step of interpretation. So if you look at the second page, the process of biblical interpretation. Hermeneutics is the science and art of interpretation. And those two words are underlined because they are different, and yet they complement one another. It is a science because it follows certain rules. In other words, a good interpreter of Scripture is going to follow certain rules, certain procedures, and certain guidelines. And yet, it is an art because it is a skill one develops with practice. In other words, the more you do it, the better you get. It's like very much riding a bicycle. The more you ride the bicycle, the better you get at it. I've shared with my students at the seminary that uh, when I was about 21 or 22, 23, probably even up into my uh, mid to late 20s, what took me 20 to 25 hours of work back then? Uh, I can now do at the age of 49 in about 10 
I can do it about half the time. You say, well, how does that happen? Well, I have gotten better at the process. I've been doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. And so as a result of that, I can do at a greater speed what at one time took me 20 to 25 hours of work and of effort. And so it is the same with all of us. The more we do it, the better we will get at it. Thus, hermeneutics is the study of methodological principles of interpreting, which allows us to take what we see and determine what it means. Now, three truths to always keep in mind. Number one, it takes time. To expose oneself to the brilliance of revealed truth takes time. That's why I said last week, if you are a Bible teacher and perhaps your assignment is to teach on Sunday, I would encourage you to start preparing your lesson the Sunday before the next Sunday. That gives you an entire week to meditate, to study, to look, as well as to allow God to speak to you concerning the truth that is in the text that you will be teaching. Secondly, there is more truth in the Bible then we can grasp in one or many readings. Indeed, infinite, eternal truth has this nature. And so the fact is, though I have studied First Peter 5, 1 through 4, many, many times, I imagine... I have put probably as much as 35 to 40 hours into study of this particular text because I have uh, preached uh, on it in a seminary setting. I've preached on it in a college setting. Uh, I've also, again, spoken many times at ordination services. And so, though I have studied it many, many times and spent hours in it, uh, each time I come back, I will say to you, I see something I didn't see the first time. Or there will be a focus or an emphasis that I simply missed in a prior reading or prior understanding. And yet, again, I should not be surprised by this. After all, it is the eternal truth of the eternal God. And then number three, it takes practice and experience. As I mentioned a moment ago, skills to develop an understanding of the text with accuracy. So, two overarching principles, an A and a B tonight. First of all, some basic principles of interpretation answering the question, what does it mean? There are a number of steps that need to be involved in this particular avenue. First of all, content. What is actually before you in the text? That is discovered by the results of your observational study. How to read and what to look for is the key. And there is a huge difference between seeing something and reading something. You may see it, but not understand it. You may see it and not read it. So if we were, for example, working our way through 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, several things would jump out at me. First of all, in verse 1, the Elders who are among you, I exhort. I would begin to wonder, elders, is that just a general word for an older person? Or is Peter perhaps using it in a technical sense for the leadership in the church? And if you study First Peter along with Acts 20 and 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, you would learn that the word elder uh, was a word that did initially mean an older man of age and maturity and experience, but it was a word that the New Testament then coins and utilizes to speak of those who have a leadership assignment in the church. And so referring to Brother Bill as, or to myself as an elder uh, would be very accurate because that's indeed what the word uh, means. Here's the Greek word presbyteros. Again, maybe you don't know Greek. 
but you ought to learn it if you can. And you would learn that the word presbyteros, from which we get our word Presbyterian, is the word that is here. And yes, originally it just meant an older man. But again, in the world of Jesus, in the world of Peter, it was the older man that was respected, not the younger. Uh, it was the older person who had experience, wisdom, maturity. And so it was a very good word to talk about what was expected of those who would be in the leadership assignment in the church. You also note that the word is in the plural. And there's a big debate among uh, theologians and uh, seminarians about uh, the idea of a single elder or a plurality of elders. Well, if you go and look up the word elder throughout the New Testament, you'll find that almost without exception, it's in the plural. Now, you say, well, does that indicate something? Well, yes, it indicates there were a number of leaders in the churches of the first century. But then I would also quickly point out that in the first century, churches did not meet in a building like this. They met in individual homes. And if it was a large church, it probably met in lots of homes. And if you were meeting in lots of homes, you would need at least a number of elders to lead and to direct and to guide in each of those house churches. And so there's a whole lot that could go on there. But again, if we're making our observation, the word elder would jump out at me. The the word shepherd would jump out at me in verse 2. The word overseer would jump out at me in verse 3. And so just some things that we'll note along the way. All right. So content. We just want to look at the text. And I will talk in a moment about the fact we especially want to find where are the verbs Where are the imperatives? Where are the participles, the action kind of words? Secondly, clue. Uh, The more time you spend in observation, the less time you will spend in interpretation, and the more accurate will be the results of your interpretation. Context. What goes before this text? What goes after it? After all, there is a near context. That is the immediate verses before and after. Uh, But there's a far context because you have the context, for example, of the whole book of 1 Peter. You have the context of the two books of Peter. You have the context of all the letters of the New Testament. You've got the context of the New Testament. And you say, my goodness, how? well, you're going to have to make some decisions of what you've got time to look at and what you don't have time to look at. But it would not be hard to get the context immediately. And something very interesting happens. You look back at chapter 4 and verse 13 and look at this. But rejoice to the extent... That you partake of Christ's sufferings. Look down at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer. Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Therefore, the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder, a witness of the what? Sufferings of Christ. And there is clearly a connection between chapter 5, verse 1 and following, going back to chapter 4 and verse 13, where you find the phrase identical. Christ's suffering, sufferings of Christ. So there's a context here. Wherein, and what is he trying to do there in chapter 5, verse 1? The elders who are among you, I what? Exhort. I encourage. Now, How does he encourage them? Well, he sandwiches his encouragement with a word about the fact that suffering 
was the experience of our Lord. You are a follower of our Lord. What makes you think you, what, would not suffer? See, sometimes ministers begin to whine and they feel sorry for themselves and they've got a stiff-necked and uncircumcised church that just won't follow them and won't listen to them and won't do anything they want them to do. And they, for some reason, forget that they're not the first person to suffer. They're not even the first person to suffer at the hands of their friends. And so here you've got, we know from First Peter, the context of suffering, the context of persecution. And so the context makes this come all the more alive. Furthermore, just take verse 19 again. Therefore, let those who suffer, what? According to the will of God. Stop. You can suffer according to the will of God, but that also means you can suffer what? Not according to the will of God. Sometimes you suffer because you are the stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart. You have that partly cloudy disposition. You've got a bad attitude. You do dumb stuff. And so you suffer. And yet you say, oh, dear Lord, I'm suffering for righteousness' sake on your behalf. No, you're not. You're suffering because you are carnal. You're suffering because you're a poor leader. You're suffering because you did some dumb stuff. But there is suffering. That is according to the will of God. And he says, therefore, what do you do? You commit your soul to him in what? Doing good as to a faithful creator. Therefore, you elders, I want you likewise to commit yourself to God in doing good. So how does an elder... Do good according to the will of God. Well, he tells you in verse 2, you shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as an overseer, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted you, but being examples to the flock. He tells we who are elders exactly how it is that we can do good, committing our souls to God, even in the face of suffering, whether it's internal are external. So the context, you say, well, you didn't go to the context afterwards. Well, very interestingly, he uh, ends up in, or he be in throughout the, the whole text of 5, 1 through 4, he's talking about what, uh, just look one, one phrase, verse 3, we're not to be lords over those entrusted to us, but we're to be examples to the flock. Well, if you're going to be example, uh, entailed in that idea, I think is the idea of Humility. Well, look at what verse 5 says. Likewise. Likewise who? Likewise the elders. You younger people, submit yourselves to your, there's that word, elders. Now you say younger, older. Probably Peter's being uh, uh, slick here. And the word elders both means the official leaders of the church. But it also means the youngers should respect Honor, follow, and respect the elders. Uh, We've got a real issue right now in our convention with some younger persons who have an attitude of ingratitude. Uh, They have a problem with pride. They have a problem with the sense of their own self-worth. They don't honor those who are their fathers in the ministry. 
And they're going to have a fall. They're going to hurt themselves if they do not repent and humble themselves before the mighty hand of God. Well, he says, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. And all of a sudden, the word humility follows in rapid fire succession twice in verse 5, again in verse 6. And so he links the admonition to the younger people in the church to his admonition to the elders in the church as well so context always makes a text come alive and you see things in a different light than you would if you ignore it all right comparison you compare scripture with scripture you're studying first peter 5 1 through 4 you know it's about leaders in the church so you ask the question are there other texts that talk about leaders in the church well absolutely acts 20 first timothy 3 titus 1 first thessalonians 5 hebrews 13 just to name four or five and if you don't know that well you look up the word elder and track it down for a while or you see the word overseer and you get your concordance and you track it down and you'll find those other texts that are there that will also inform you as to the totality of the Bible's teaching on those who have responsibility for leadership in the church. Again, remember, the parts always take on meaning in light of the whole. Culture. What was the social setting uh, at that time? What was the historical situation, the chronos, language, customs, political environment? Well, most Bible scholars, and if you have a study Bible, or you with us last year when we did our survey of the New Testament, you know that First Peter was written during the time that Nero reigned as emperor. You also know that many Bible scholars believe that First Peter was written perhaps on the heels of the burning of Rome... Done by Nero, but blamed on the Christians. Maybe that's why he refers to, earlier in the book, to the fiery trials that you are enduring. There's a play there. And the fiery trials of Rome, and by the way, Christians in Rome were really going through it. The first Peter's not written to the Christians at Rome because he tells you in chapter 1, verse 1, I'm writing to those in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. But what he is saying is, look, what's going on in Rome is probably going to spread to where you are as too. They're undergoing fiery trials. You can expect fiery trials. They're undergoing suffering. You're going to undergo suffering. What is more crucial for a church that's going through suffering than that the leadership has its act together? And therefore, that's why you have the admonition in 5, 1 through 4. Consultation. Use resources after you've done your personal study. If you are serious, if you're here tonight and you really are serious about being a good student of the Bible, you need to quit spending your money on stupid books, dumb magazines, and a newspaper that's filled with malarkey. That's just my sweet counsel to you tonight. And you ought to use your money and go out and buy you a good Bible dictionary, a good Bible atlas, a good Bible concordance, and buy you some good commentaries. If you don't know how to do all that, you email me, you call me, I'll be glad to direct you in the right uh, way to purchase the kind of books that will help you be a better student of the Word of God. But the fact of the matter is, there's sometimes when studying the Bible, if you don't have these things, 
You're not really going to be able to grasp all that is in that text and the significance of what is going on. So we need to have good consultation. Then construction. You want to learn to build a good exegetical or homiletical or teaching outline that again arises clearly out of the text. You want to allow that text to determine both the structure of your outline and the content of your outline. But remember... First comes the Word of God, then comes, secondly, the sources or resources. Turn to page 3. So, some basic principles and interpretation. Now let me give you ten rules to follow as you interpret the Word of God as well. Number one, work from the assumption that the Bible is authoritative. I, indeed, operate from the assumption that the Bible is infallible and inerrant. That means there are no mistakes in it, no errors in it. You say, why do you believe that? Because I believe ultimately the Bible has one author, and the one author is God. Maybe better said, the ultimate author is God. And God is a God of truth. And so even if I come to something that looks like an apparent contradiction or an apparent discrepancy, I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt because I start from the fundamental uh, position and presupposition that God is the ultimate author of Scripture. He is a God of truth, and therefore the Bible is true, and therefore the Bible is authoritative in all matters for my life. Secondly, interpret difficult passages in light of the clear passages. Let the Bible interpret itself. So, for example, you've got baptism for the dead mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 29. You don't build a doctrine of baptism from that one verse. No, you need to build a doctrine of baptism from all that the Bible has to say about baptism and allow the more clear text to inform the more difficult text. Number three. Interpret personal experience in the light of Scripture, not Scripture in the light of personal experience. The classic example. I have a lady come to me or a man come to me. This has happened. And they say to me, I believe God is leading me to divorce my mate. Now, I immediately know that they're in error. Because the Bible is very clear. God hates divorce. And the fact of the matter is, God is a reconciling God. And God is not going to lead you to leave your mate and marry another person. He is not going to do that. And so I simply have to say to them, you know, that may be what you feel in your heart. That may be what your experience is telling you. But the fact of the matter is, your heart, what does the Bible say, is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? And the fact is, your experience may be wrong. I don't judge the Scriptures by my experience. I judge my experience by the Scriptures, and it is my experience that has to line up with the Scriptures. Number four, remember that Scripture has only one meaning but many applications. In other words, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4 has a single meaning, a single sense, though the applications of it may be virtually unlimited as we come to understand what it means. And then ask, well, how does this apply in Raleigh, North Carolina? How would this apply in... uh, Dakota, India. How would this apply in Nairobi, Kenya? How would this apply? And it's going to apply perhaps differently in different contexts, but the meaning, though, is the same. 
Number five, interpret words and passages in harmony with their meaning in the time of the author. What did the word elder mean in the first century? Uh, What did the word exhort mean in the first century? What did the word shepherd mean in the first century? The word overseer, this word dishonest gain, uh, this idea of lording over. What did those words mean in the time of the writing of the book? And that is the valuable of good expository commentaries. We also then need to understand we must interpret these things bridging the gaps. There is a language gap. We speak English. The New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew and some passages in Aramaic. We have a historical gap. Peter wrote in A.D. 64. This is 2006. There's a difference in time by almost 2,000 years. There's a cultural gap. Uh, We live in the Western world, greatly influenced by the whole Western tradition of Greek philosophy. This was a Semitic world. They thought very definitely in Jewish, Hebrew categories, which I will tell you tonight, virtually none of us in here really understand. I'm still working at it, struggling to get back into that context, into that world, into that way of thinking. But it's a very different way of thinking than the way you and I think with our Western, uh, logical, mechanistic uh, way of looking at things. There's a geographical gap. You know, we live in a place where it's like the Garden of Eden. It's green, at least when it rains, and it's pretty, and it's luscious. If you've ever been to Palestine, uh, it's nasty. It's just a lot of rock and dirt. I can't for life of me figure out why they fight over that land. It's nasty land. No, nobody wants that kind of stuff, but, but they evidently do. And so you go over there, you go to Rome, try to get back in the ancient world. It's a different kind of uh, geography all the way around. Literary. They write in a different way than we do. They, by the way, think about this. Most people in that world can even read. Those who could read, unless they had great wealth, could not own books. So most of the things that were written were written in such a way that you could hear it and memorize it. The odds are most Hebrews had the books that they knew of memorized, the books of the Bible. And so if you read the books of the New Testament, virtually all of them were probably written in a way that would have aided and enhanced memorization. That's a different way than what we experience today. And then, of course, there's a theological gap as well that we have to uh, bridge because of what comes at number six. We need to interpret Scripture in light of its progressive revelation. You say, what does that mean? Well, let's just take one example. The Bible teaches we've always been saved by faith. Abraham, what? Believed God. And it was accounted to him as to righteousness. But now, what did Abraham believe God about? Now, I believe he believed God was going to send a deliverer. I think Abraham saw something unique in Genesis 22, but he was justified in Genesis 15. You and I now have the advantage of looking back to the completed work of Christ. Always saved by faith. But you and I have a content to that faith that is superior to anyone in the Old Testament dispensation, and so progressive revelation. Number seven, remember you must understand the Bible grammatically before you can understand it theologically. In other words, you've got to know the words and their meaning before you begin to build your theology. Number eight, a doctrine cannot be considered biblical unless it includes all that the Scriptures say about it. Do not practice selective citation or proof texting. For example, I'll get really uh, into a... a, a, a not so comfortable area. Can a 
elder in the church, a pastor of a church, be a divorced man? Now, don't answer out loud. Just, just let it sink. First Peter 5, 1 through 4 doesn't address it. But First uh, Timothy 3, 1 does. Titus 1, 5 does. So, in other words, if I'm going to build a theology for leadership in the church, I don't just use 1 Peter 5. I use Acts 20, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Thessalonians 5, Hebrews 13, and other texts as well. And I come to understand at least, based upon 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, that an elder, an overseer, must be a one-woman kind of man. He has to be absolutely above reproach in terms of his reputation as to his fidelity to his wife. Personally, I think that means he cannot be a divorced man. Because I don't know how you regain that reputation, especially if there was infidelity involved in the life of that minister in his ministry. I personally believe such a man is permanently disqualified. Now, 1 Peter 5 doesn't even address the issue at all. But 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 does. Number 9. We need to learn to distinguish between the Proverbs and the promises of God. Let me give you an example that maybe will help some of you tonight. There's a proverb that's well known. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And there are some parents, perhaps even some of you tonight, that suffer some guilt because you can't figure out what you did wrong because your child, you were convinced, was trained up in the way they should go, but they have walked away from the faith and the things of God do not matter to them at all. Now, listen to me. That statement is a proverb. It is not an ironclad, always in every instance, promise. It is not. That is not the way Proverbs function. Proverbs are wisdom sayings. Proverbs are statements that basically are true almost or at least most of the time. That's what they are. But they are not iron-clad promises. Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from, is not the same thing as John 3.16. John 3.16 is an always true promise anytime, any place, anywhere, under any circumstances. It is not a proverb. It is a declaration of salvation. But the proverbs are different. And so we have to distinguish between what is a promise of God and what is a proverb of God. And far too many believers, again, badly, badly, badly confuse this issue. Then number 10. When two doctrines taught in the Bible appear to be contradictory, except both as scriptural in the confident belief that they resolve themselves in some type of higher unity. The classic, again, is do you believe in man's free will or do you believe in God's sovereignty? And the answer is you better believe in both. Well, how do I put them together? Like this, not like this, but like this. And you accept that both are true, even though in your finite Limited, sinful mind, you may not be able to perfectly understand how they do indeed harmonize and come together in a compatible kind of a way. Page 4 then just gives you kind of a chart that helps you see what we're trying to do in terms of this context issue and these background issues. 
there's a text we're studying, but around it is an immediate context. Around it is the same biblical book. Around it is other books by the same author. Around that is other biblical usages. And even ultimately, there's extra biblical information that will help you. So, page five, again, hammering home these basic guidelines. One, the context always rules when interpreting the text. Don't you rip that text out of its context. You run the risk of misinterpreting it. Secondly, the text must be interpreted in light of all that the Scripture has to say about that particular subject. If I am, again, building an understanding of leadership in the church, I can't just do it from 1 Peter 5. I've got to bring these other texts to the table as well. Third, Scripture will never contradict itself. God is its ultimate author. He is a God of truth, and therefore there is no contradiction in Scripture. Number four, Scripture should be interpreted literally, or maybe the better word is naturally, in its normal, straightforward sense, recognizing, though, as we talked about last week, the kind of literature that it is. First Peter is a letter. It may have some metaphors and some figures of speech, but First Peter should not be interpreted in the same way you would interpret Revelation. Because it is written in a straightforward, here's a letter from me to you kind of way. Number five, don't develop your doctrine again from the obscure or difficult passages. Number six, you're after the author's original intended meaning. And number seven, check your conclusions using reliable sources. As I said last week, if you're the only person to, inst- to interpret and understand the text in a particular way, you may be right, but you're probably not. Because in essence, you're saying, I am the first one to ever get this puppy right, and hundreds, yea, thousands before me missed it. Now, that's theoretically possible, but it is highly, highly, highly unlikely. So you say, all right, Danny, get practical for me a moment. I'm studying 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. How do I go about in a practical kind of way doing that? On page 6. I point out for you that if I were preparing to teach from this text, I would take out several sheets of paper and I would write down 1 Peter 5 verse 1 and looking at it, I would probably give at least a half a page to a full page for that one verse. Then I'd take a second page, 1 Peter 5, 2. And looking at it with the word shepherd, the phrase flock of God among you, the phrase or the word overseer, and then the two of the three uh, adverbial uh, G and Hall phrases, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those and trust you, but being examples to the flock. Well, verse two is probably going to get a full page too. Verse three, not as being lords over those and trust you, but being examples to the flock. Make give a half a page to that. And then verse four, when the chief shepherd appears, he will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. At least a half a page for that. And then what I start doing with these blank pages. I just start writing down key observations. So, for example, you see at the bottom of the page, my 11 steps. First of all, after praying, I track the verbs and I parse them. So I look at chapter 5, verse 1. The elders who are among you, I, there's your first verb, exhort. I, who am a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So, in verse 1, clearly the main verb is exhort. 
And then you have at the end of it will be revealed. So I'm going to do a study of the word exhort. Go to verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Now, very interesting. If you study this text, you'll discover there's one imperative in verses 1 through 4. It is the word shepherd. This is also very interesting. We call, and I think rightly so, uh, Brother Bill, our pastor. But do you know that the noun form of the word pastor in reference to the leadership of the church only occurs one time in the New Testament, and that's in Ephesians 4.11, where there he is called the pastor-teacher. The words that are far more prominent are the words elder, uh, presbyteros, and the word overseer or bishop, the word episkopos. Here, the word shepherd is the verbal form, the word poimen, which means shepherd or pastor. But it's very interesting. If you study our history, when did we start calling our leaders pastors? Because it is not the dominant word in the New Testament. But you see the word there, shepherd. Well, that's a very rich word. It doesn't say that the leader of the church is a dictator. It says he's a shepherd. He shepherds the flock. What does it say? The flock of God, which is among you. So I see I'm to exhort from verse 1. They're to shepherd in verse 2. And then you have what follows, serving. There's a, a, a participial modifier, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not being lords over those entrusted to you. But being, stated being verb, examples to the flock. So I, I, I mark all the verbs. In fact, again, if you look at my Bible, you see it's all marked up. I use a wax pencil, not a highlighter, a wax pencil, because they don't bleed through and mess up the other side. And I start marking the verbs, and then I find a, uh, a, a, a linguistic device that parses them for me. Now, you don't have to be able to do that. You can just read in the English and figure out what are the main verbs. But you want to mark them because the verbs tell you the storyline or the argument that the author is presenting. Then secondly or thirdly, you look for key words needing definition. I'm going to define the word elder. I'm going to define uh, the word uh, shepherd. I'm going to define the word overseer. I, I'm going to look up that word in verse 1, a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. You'll find out the word partaker is related to the Greek word koinonia or fellowship. So I'm going to look up key words. I can't look up necessarily every word. I may not have time. So I look up the most important words. In verse 2, I'm going to look up the word overseer. I'm going to look up the word compulsion. I'm going to probably, well, the dishonest, dishonest gain, I think we all know what that is. I'll look up the word eagerly. Uh, lords over those. I probably looked that up as well. So you look for key words needing definition. Number four, you look for repetition of phrases and words. Uh, in this particular text, there's really no repetition in verses uh, one through four. Number five, you look for scenes in the text, which will inform the number of points and the nature of the teaching outline. Well, verse one kind of stands on, on its own. Verse two and three go together. And verse four stands on its own. And... It's a transition there. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So I'm looking for the turns in the text so I follow the argument of the author. Again, we note number six, the near and far context. 
Number seven, we search for helpful and supporting Scripture. So I would find helpful and supporting Scripture in First uh, Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and Acts 20 and First Thessalonians 5 and Hebrews 13. There's helpful supporting data there. Number eight, then, I begin to write out on these sheets any and every observation application that I see in the text. Number nine, I then pull my Bible dictionary, my concordance, my Bible encyclopedias, my commentaries, and I examine these study aids, and I write out any helpful insights that they have, and I do this. I note the source for future reference and appropriate citation. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, you may have just seen recently that a young, probably gifted, Harvard female student has been nailed to the wall and shamed beyond measure for what? Plagiarism. That is known as intellectual thievery, intellectual uh, stealing. Stealing, stealing boys and girls. And so if you come across something in a book that you say, man, that is like really, 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 really good. Don't pass it off as yours. Because I already know you're not that smart anyway. So they'll know you're not. No, I'm just kidding. Maybe you are. But don't pass it off as yours. Give credit to whom credit's due. Furthermore, maybe some other time you want to go back. Man, I came across a really good statement about what it means to be a leader in the church. Now, where, well, you find it in your notes. In fact, I've actually got some notes in my files that have, it'll say, illustration. Now, this one's not there, but they'll make my point. Illustration. Man bites dog. Well, you know what? I wrote that about 25 years ago in my notes. And I can't remember what happened 25 years ago when that man bit that dog. For the life of me, I I don't remember it. Uh, I don't know where I got it. And so guess what? Today, it is of no value. So for me now, at the 49-year mark, I got a little smarter. In my notes, I write down, and here's my rule of thumb. I write down enough information so that 25 years from now... I will know what I was talking about 25 years ago. That's my rule of thumb. I give that much information and that much citation so I can go back and know where I got it and know what I had read. All right. Number 10, look for the truth and avenues of theology that the text logically supports and then try to bring all that to a teaching outline. So page seven, we summarize and we conclude tonight the overarching seven step process. Number one, observation. What do I see? Number two, interpretation. Taking what I see, what does it mean? Correlation. How does it fit together? That's why you want to bring in other texts to help you see the whole biblical picture of an issue such as leadership in the church for us tonight. Number four, application. How do I put this into practice? What does it mean for a pastor uh, to shepherd not by compulsion but willingly? Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Not being a lord over those entrusted you, but being example to the flock. By the way, he's still leading because he's the shepherd and we're the flock. Now, he is to lead, not dictate. He is to lead and not drive, but he is to lead. And if God has called Brother Bill to lead, then that means God has called you and me to do what? To follow. To follow. And if you and I are not following, then we're in sin. And God will deal with us for that. I, you know, one of the things, this is for free. Brother Bill, he snuck back in here, but this is for free. He didn't ask me to do this. I love the fact that I'm not a pastor. 
And I'm just a regular member of this church who is under the pastoral leadership and authority of my pastor. And I'll tell you this. Unless he does something that is illegal, immoral, unethical, or unbiblical. If you or anyone else in this church would ever raise your hand against my pastor, you're going to go through me first. Because I'm going to be in your face protecting him and standing in front of him. Because even though I may have a Ph.D. and God by his promise stuck me as the president of a seminary in this church, I'm a follower. And he is my spiritual leader. And the same thing is true for all of us that are members of this church. Well, there's some application both ways as to how do you put it into practice. Then fifthly, illustration. How has this principle worked in other areas and in other people's lives? Number six, proclamation. How do I communicate this truth effectively to others? And then number seven, and this is often missing in many preachers and teachers of the scriptures. How do I encourage others to both love God and to love God? How? By obeying God. And so it would not be enough for me to bring a top-notch study of 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4 if I'm not motivating you to live out 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4 as it applies to you, then I have failed. And I have short-circuited what it means to rightly interpret and explain the Bible. Well, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you again that, that we can know and understand your word. And you've given us good guidelines and principles that will enable us to rightly understand it. But, Lord, it's not enough just to understand it. I would submit that we haven't really understood your word unless we are obeying your word. And that's not Danny Aiken. That's the word of God. Because if we're not doing it, if we're not living it, then in actuality we really don't understand it. So, Lord, help us to not only be hearers of the word, as James says, but doers of the word. That we might bring honor and great glory to our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, We hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.